Hello, friend. Welcome to Mr. Rewatch, your Mr. Robot recap podcast brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. I'm Aaron. I'm Devlin. We have waited a long time for season three, huh? No kidding. This is exciting. We're here with a brand new season of weekly releases. So we know you're used to us releasing in binge mode, but um, you're actually going to get content more frequently from us. Uh, so that's exciting. Uh, what else is exciting, uh, Devlin? Well, uh, this is basically, uh, we, we had a break between seasons here where I had a, a few weeks off and I knew that I would be so busy for the preceding weeks that I didn't really plan any celebrations for my birthday. So I was able to kind of uh, have a, a belated birthday celebration that was a lot of fun. Oh yeah, what'd you do? I, I saw an Against Me show, which I mentioned uh, in a previous podcast episode actually. And then I did an escape room and ate some Italian food. It's pretty good. That does sound pretty good. You were there, so can you tell me if it was good? It was good. I had a lot That's of fun. That's great. <laughs> I meant to tell you, I uh, I got tickets to see our fake dad, Henry Rollins. Oh, really? In the winter, yeah. Have you seen him before? I have. That's awesome. I know. So we have a lot. That'll be for my birthday, though. So that'll be exciting. That show's like two days after my birthday. What? We should all go. All right. Mr. Rewatch field trip to Henry Rollins. Um, so speaking of music, uh, I think there was... A couple of great tracks in this first episode, but the one I think is really special here, right at the beginning, they actually use a Julie Andrews song, um, Whistling Away the Dark, and to me it sounded like something Danny Elfman would write. It's very um, kind of creepy, but also beautiful, and uh, the way they line it up with, um, with the visuals is just fantastic. So, Julie Andrews, Whistling Away the Dark. Often I think this sad old world Whistling in the dark, just like a child who, late from school, walks bravely home through the park. So, this is the much anticipated premiere for season three. Uh, it seems like it's kind of taking on some different tones from the previous seasons, kind of like how season one was more focused on technology and season two was more focused on um, like psychological horror, detective fiction, stuff like that. I kind of feel like I'm getting some more um, like science fiction vibes from this episode in particular. Did you feel the same way? I really did. And I'm, I'm not sure how much I like that as a concept because what I don't want the show to become is Fringe. Did you watch Fringe? Yeah, and I also objected for the same reason. And I loved Fringe. And also notice how much Angela looks like Olivia. I didn't watch enough Fringe Weird, to know right? who that character is. Um, she's like the main detective in it. but um, or, or agent. That might be a better way to describe her. I'm hoping that we don't get too far down that road. I mean, I don't mind the sort of... Um, tangents into this sort of like metaphysical or you know fringe science stuff but i i think personally i would feel a bit disappointed if that was the main trajectory of this season i agree because i think that one thing about mr robot that really appeals to me is that most of the storyline is um is rooted in reality in some way and especially the technology most of it is um fairly technically accurate at least like they take a bit of creative license but i think that if they were to involve like alternate realities and stuff like that which i think that they're talking about and kind of hinting at and maybe an abstract way at this point that would kind of uh cross the boundary for me i actually was gonna say the very same thing where i think the power of this show is how plausible it seems to me uh and especially we're going to talk more about how directly it links to current events later in the episode but i think i would be disappointed if they took that into a more abstract speculative place 
But I mean, the show very rarely disappoints me. So, you know, we've got yeah. uh, we've got a lot to come ahead of us. So, uh, season two introduced some really cool new characters. We got to see Leon and Dom. I think uh, two new characters in season two. Uh, season three introduces this new um, Irving guy, but there are also some characters who are absent from this episode, at least. Right, and so Irving is played by uh, Bobby Cannavale, um, and perhaps I say that name wrong, um, but apparently he was in Boardwalk Empire. Um, he's uh, an actor that's that's known to people. I initially don't like that character, and then start to like him. I think that's a good way to put it. Uh, the first scene, kind of, um, he, he's a bit of a jerk, or maybe just like super pedantic is a good way to put it. Yeah, let's get into that in the first scene. Yeah, yeah, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Um, there are some faces who are missing from this episode. I think Mr. Robot has so many unanswered questions and cliffhanger pieces that when they finally come back, you're really excited to see what happened. So in a couple of ways, we don't get any satisfaction because we don't get to see um, Dom in this episode um, and Trenton and Mobley or Leon. And also Joanna Wellick is kind of conspicuously missing from this. So I have a lot of questions and I expect they will be answered in future episodes, but none of them are, uh, none of them are around for this one. Yeah. And it's so tantalizing because the last we saw Trenton and Mobley, they were just meeting Leon for the first time. And the last time we saw Dom, um, they were with Arlene at the FBI office. So it really makes me wonder what's happened since then. So let's circle back to the comment you were making about the new character um, being a bit uh, difficult or unlikable in this first scene. Yeah, well, I, I think that they probably think that they're right in this situation and they're just a little misguided. I, I don't really think that I'm ready to call them a jerk just because they behave like this. But um, it's interesting to contrast how they introduce this character here, whose name I think is Irving, um, to contrast that with how they introduce Dom, which is a very familiar situation where she's ordering a sandwich from Ahmed. And you can see that she is very nice, very friendly with the person who's serving her. And Irving is just not at all. Oh, I didn't even think of that comparison. Yeah, because he's kind of beating up on this poor, like, minimum wage worker who has to enforce an arbitrary rule, right? They don't have any discretion in this. And it's so interesting to think about how Dom personalized Ahmed, spoke to him in his language, like, yeah. tried to support the store, and they were, like, going under. So, yeah, real. that's a really interesting contrast. Um, also... It's funny to think about how much food factors into this show in a weird way. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It's almost like a, a Biggie small song. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I, I liked here that they called back to the Red Wheelbarrow. We see it's a real place. So remember the Red Wheelbarrow Diner menu. Sorry, Red Wheelbarrow Barbecue. That's what it is. Yeah. Barbecue joint. Um, that menu is where um, Mr. Robot and Elliot had found that cipher in the last episode that had led them to Tyrell Wellick. Yeah, it seems like they're really ramping up on the Red Wheelbarrow stuff this season. So Irving's um, argument with uh, the worker is interrupted. He gets a phone call, and the phone call helps situate us in time because he, someone has called him to let him know that Elliot has been shot. I love the way he plays this moment, though. Where he's like, well, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he seems to be very, like, by the books, very, like, business as usual. Um, I think that he's he's supposed to portray as very competent, and he reminded me a lot of the character in Pulp Fiction, who I think is named Wolf, who kind of comes and cleans up after um, the main characters create a mess in that story. So I, I think that this guy, like, he seems like he's an expert at this point. I guess we the assumption we make is that the call comes from Tyrell. Yeah, and he's uh, screaming and panicking on the other side. Right. 
So we know then that uh, Irving and Tyrell are in charge of managing this situation. And shortly, we're going to catch up with Elliot and see what's happened to him. You know, another thing that reminded me of Pulp Fiction is, um, d- did you see that? And do you remember the diner scene with Vincent and Mia Wallace? Not well. Well, he or- they, they drink a $5 milkshake and he complains about how expensive it is. And the milkshakes that they serve here are like twelve ninety five, And I can't imagine getting a twelve ninety five milkshake. $13 American at a time when there is no cash to be had? Oh, like, yeah. Milkshakes are uh, the new conspicuous consumption. But, you know, it's it's a front for the Dark Army. So maybe you're ordering a milkshake, but actually getting like a gram of Coke or something. And that's just what they call it. It is full of people. So that might explain the barbecue place's popularity. All right. So the next scene, Return of Sandwich Man, who I believe is the person who's actually in the credits called hamburger man but it does not look like a hamburger to me i think that we're still correct to call him sandwich man anyway because a hamburger is technically kind of sandwich is a hot dog a sandwich i got a lot to say about this because i think that it is i me and aaron have a a friend who's a designer actually who's illustrating a sandwich family tree and when you think about it even like tacos and burritos they're all they're all the abstract notion of a sandwich when you think about it they all like implement the monad interface because like sandwiches and monads can you explain to a layperson what that is fuck no <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> look it up yourselves listeners I'm still and figuring report out myself. back on your findings <laughs> um, uh so now um we're transported to the new warehouse that's been set up by the dark army for the purposes of implementing stage two tyrell has just shot elliot the new guy comes in and i'm actually really surprised that he starts taking pictures yeah, and I think that he just, like, sends it to someone else, or it doesn't seem like very good OPSEC. <laughs> no, because he's creating evidence and then distributing it, so I really don't know what his game is in that way. Oh, actually, now that I think about it, um, we see that White Rose has pictures of Elliot later on, so I bet that that's how they got it. Oh, and so we do have this sense, of course, that this guy is Dark Army affiliated. Um, I don't know why I said that so weirdly, affiliated. So he's the cleanup guy. He calls in their doctors. Yeah, it's pretty cool that they seem to have their own surgical team. That just sounds so sketchy to me. Like, who do you get to do a surgery on the DL in a warehouse? I wonder if he checked like for his kidneys after. He probably should have. <laughs> anyway, it gets taken care of. Um, he goes back out to his car, and he's having a conversation on the phone. We're not really sure who's on the other end of that, right? I don't think it's made clear yet. But he's seeking further directions, so he wants to know what they want done about the Swede, so Tyrell. His fate is in the hands of New Guy as well. And you see him, he's told to call Angela Moss. The next thing we've got a tour of some kind of huge sci-fi-looking facility. I don't really think it's clear what it is yet, though. My hunch is that it's the Washington Township plant, so a sludge plant. (laughs) I think that makes sense because they're talking about alternate universes in it and you know the White Rose is there. So there are a couple of different kinds of parallels that we want to talk about in this scene because so this, remember at the beginning of this episode, we talked a bit about they're going down this road of parallel universes and the tour guide, they're leading about six or seven people who are all in like lab coats and hairnets for some inexplicable reason because I believe this is a nuclear facility. They're talking about parallel universes, uh, parallel versions of oneself with conjoined mental states. And so you have some interesting things to say about um, identities and parallels. 
Well, it's really like it's only the first episode of the season, so it's very hard to make any kind of extrapolations. I'm probably going to be wrong about every assumption that I have in this episode. Because, I mean, like when we've been commenting on the other episodes, we have the benefit of knowing what was happening next. And now we're in the dark. So I guess you want to see what our actual criticism is like. <laughs> Two interesting things here. I think that when they're talking about um, kind of altered states or kind of like um, personalities and consciousness from different universes um, connecting or mingling in different ways. Like, they talk about stuff like that. I wonder if that's hinting at um, Elliot and Mr. Robot, like if perhaps those are two incarnations of one person in two different universes. And um, again, like, I think if they go that direction, that would be a little too over-the-top sci-fi, and I hope that they don't. But um, another parallel here is White Rose, who's always talking about parallel identities and um, parallel universes, parallel, like, senses of self. I think that in a previous episode, we've talked about how um, when White Rose is presenting as female, we've used female pronouns and refer to them as White Rose. And when they're presenting as um, Minister Zhang, we refer to them that way and use uh, masculine pronouns. But in this case, when they're talking to their associate here, they, they seem to be presenting as masculine. But I think that their personality is more like White Rose than like Zhang, if that makes sense. It does, because I think when Zhang speaks, Zhang is usually very focused on... Um on the high-level political forces at work and also on strategic plans, where White Rose, I think, delves into situations in a very different way. And so when they're talking about Elliot's father dying for the cause and, and things like that, I do have the sense that it's more White Rose speaking. I think that there's actually like a very direct example I can point to here about how their modes of speech are so much different. Because when White Rose was speaking to... Oh, actually, no, this is more like a counter example than I think about it, because White Rose was speaking to um, Price over the phone in a previous episode. After they hang up on the phone, they say something to the associate that he's like, uh, they call him like a kitty or something like that. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm not sure I do. White Rose calls Elliot like a silly goose or something right now. Yeah. And previously they called Price like a mean little kitty or something. So like they use animal analogies, but only when they're being White Rose. Right. I might be getting too much into that anyway. One thing that's interesting in terms of the acting here. So first, I think B.D. Wong does an amazing job with this role. And so when we look at Elliot and Mr. Robot, so Remy Malek and Christian Slater separately play two halves of one um, collective identity where B.D. Wong is playing two different parts of a collective identity as one actor. And I think that these subtle distinctions and the way that he inhabits this role is really great. Uh, I just love the way he brings this character to life. Let's talk a bit about Zhang's aide, who's getting pretty ambitious. Yeah, he's starting to learn English, actually. And that's because he wants to be in charge of stage two. I kind of wondered what would happen at this point, because it seemed like he was um, asking for a little much. I think it's an opportunity here, plot-wise, to have Zhang confirm Elliot's significance or lack of significance to the bigger plan revolving around Sludgegate and the plant. Because here we see that the 5-9 hack really gave them an opportunity. So I don't know. I think that's almost collateral damage. I don't know how much Dark Army cares about the 5-9 hack, but it's really given them an opportunity to focus on what's really important to them. And of course, we know that they have other plans for intrusion into the Congo. And I have a theory about why that is. Oh, I hadn't really thought about how this connects to the Congo stuff, but it must, right? Well, so here's my theory. And 
Devlin's exactly right. We're in previous episodes. We have the benefit of knowing how the story works out. So this is speculative on our part. And of course, we look forward to being uh, corrected <laughs> later. I, I think we're going to be completely wrong, to be honest, because this show is just impossible to predict. So this is really about our sleuthing skills. Um, <laughs> but if we think about the Congo, so... Congo is the source of certain very specific minerals that are used in tech products. Oh. They have an economic significance and a power. And, of course, um, also is politically volatile. Okay. That must have something to do with it. I think that there, if I were writing the show, which, of course, I am not, um, those minerals could be why Dark Army has an interest in getting a foothold there. That's the only theory I have is that it's minerals related to the production of um, certain microchips and things like that. I could definitely believe that. I wonder because it seems like they sort of have um, two parallel storylines going on here, one of which is um, maybe like secret stuff going on. It's a uh, sludge... Sludge factory. Sludge, plant? sludge, sludge factory. I like that better, maybe. <laughs> okay, at sludge factory. So I think that there's something going on there, and I wonder how that's going to relate to what's going on in Congo, because those seem to be two completely divergent storylines at this point. Um, I think that we kind of get a hint of what's going on in the plants, though, because it doesn't it doesn't seem like any nuclear plants I've ever seen. Not that I have seen any nuclear plants like at all, or even in pictures or anything, but it looked to me like. Something I have seen in pictures, which is um, the Large Hadron Collider, like a, par a particle accelerator at CERN that they use to... What do they use it for? They slam particles together for some reason. And I think that maybe that has something to do with parallel universes. I'm really curious um, for us to find out more about the facility they're in and about how this storyline takes shape in this season. All right, so... Here's something I think everyone's waiting for to see what's become of Elliot and where he's landed. So we see that he's alive and he's just waking up after the shooting. He he calls out to the viewer. He's still trying to figure out what's real. And there's an interesting audio piece at the beginning of this clip. And I'm going to call on producer Dave to tell us a bit more about that. Yeah. So what they end up doing is uh, it's this technique called bit crushing. Uh, there's a ton of plugins and and audio effects that do this uh say you record a sample at like 32 bits you know uh, that's per sample uh it slowly actually takes bits of information out of each sample and then also uh you can turn the frequency down at which those samples play at uh and that creates like a really like kind of digital rocky feeling so they used it at the end of season two uh when mr robot was actually fading in and out his voice was being crushed as well Oh, I know what you mean now. I didn't really know, like, I, I didn't recognize that as it was happening, but I think that now that I know what you're talking about, I can piece it together. Yeah, now that you explain it, I was like, that makes sense to me. And so that's very cool to know. We learned that Elliot has been taken to Angela's apartment. Um, there's no electricity. So there are candles everywhere, and that's kind of a cool, this whole episode, for the most part, is in the dark with very little lighting. So, um... He's at Angela's, and for some reason, I just don't trust her at all. No, it seems like she's hiding something at this point, even though she's only been on the screen for like 30 seconds. There's just something different about the way she comports herself that makes me feel very suspicious. Of course, we know she's met with White Rose. We know that she's on board, that she has given White Rose her belief as asked. So it just feels very fishy to me. Um, and she gives him very little information. He's trying to figure out what happened, how he got there. She says that he was brought there by the people he works with, and the only one that she recognized is Tyrell. Now, if I were Elliot, 
I'd wonder how she knew who Tyrell was at all. Well, she also works at um, Allsafe where he had swung by that one day. So I guess that they could have even met on the same day. But they haven't. That's true. Yeah, but they haven't really met each other on the show yet, I guess. Um, Elliot, he's still obsessed with the idea of putting an end to stage two, which, as we remember, is the plan to destroy the recovery center for E Corp. Um, and in the course of that, um, that people would be killed. He wants to go to the police, and Angela, thinking very quickly, says that the Dark Army has said they'll kill her if there's any attention to it. She says that they'll make that very clear, and it's very ominous because she doesn't explain how they did that exactly. Now that I'm thinking about it more, I wonder if it's just an outright fabrication, and she's kind of using this to manipulate him, because she knows that nobody could really say no to something as serious as that. But um, we, we do know that the Dark Army is very dangerous, so I'm not going to put it past them when they would threaten her like that. I still think she's lying. I do. Uh, she does tell him the Dark Army got to her before she could go to the FBI, so he knows she hasn't confessed. Elliot pukes up the rest of the stage two details to her, so whatever she didn't know before, she sure knows now. Um, and then Elliot, he's going to leave to take action, and so when he asks for something to wear, she uh, gives him a property of Josh Groban shirt. I wasn't able to read the shirt. Do you think that's a reference to something? I think, honestly, there are very few moments of comedy in this show, but I think it's a joke because um, we had to Google who that is. We're not cool enough. Well, I think we might be too cool because uh, <laughs> I think he's just a very mainstream American musician. Um, so, oh, okay. I thought they were too obscure. No, it's something Elliot would probably never choose. And so, interesting, um, I Googled who is Josh Groban. People also ask, how many languages does Josh Groban know? What is Josh Groban's religion? And what is the net worth of Josh Groban? <laughs> so, you know, uh, people are curious, uh, as we were, about him. But so he leaves the house in this, like, goofy shirt. And I think it's nice. It's kind of the one lighthearted moment in this, uh, I was going to say episode, but uh, series. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Speaking of um, Google autocomplete, though, some more lighthearted stuff. I want to plug this website called... Um, autocomplete me which creates poetry based on google autocomplete results oh i love that it's great they're almost like little haikus after this elliot makes a quick trip to the warehouse to try and track down tyrell we see that uh sandwich guy has been laid off it's very sad and uh the place is fully wiped yeah at least they didn't burn it down like the disc recovery place in season one Oh, yeah, that's right <laughs> so not very much is established in this scene it seems like basically Mr. Robot's gone, the warehouse is burned, and we still can't find Tyrell. That's an important point you hit on, though, because also absent from the first part of this episode is Mr. Robot. He's nowhere to be seen. Elliot moves on from there. He's got a lot of questions um, and heads back to his apartment where someone is waiting for him. Are you referring to the landlord or the person who's actually in his apartment? <laughs> well, weirdly, the landlord just tells him that someone is waiting inside his apartment for him. Yeah, like he doesn't really seem phased like, by the BNE that he just supervised. No, he's cool with it. He's offering discounts on a vacant apartment, so you know they can have their own if they want. What a helpful landlord. What a helpful landlord. Um, who's inside the apartment? Well, I think that he looked around and he saw that black Escalade, so we're led to believe that it's going to be Tyrell or maybe the FBI or somebody like that. Did you pick up on that too? I couldn't see who was in the car, but yeah. there are certainly people outside watching. Uh, the reason I mentioned it is that I think that they kind of try and misdirect you into thinking it'll be somebody other than Darlene. But of course, Darlene, like she's broken into Elliot's place enough times so that we can expect it's her by now. <laughs> he should give her a key, maybe. Yeah. 
Darlene is there. He does not tell her that he's been shot. Yeah, and she comments on the fact that he's walking funny, but she doesn't really press any further than that. It hasn't occurred to me that she has no idea about that. She's got a lot of questions for Elliot. I find this scene hard to watch because Darlene is always so strong and so spirited and so smart and so determined. And watching her fall apart is really hard. Yeah, she really seems to be unraveling now and it's hard to watch. Especially because, you know, kind of like how the third season is kind of uh, taking the story on some characters in different directions. I think that they really um, pivot Elliot's character in, in a bit of a different direction here. Because he's very brutal to Darlene, I think. Especially considering all the stuff that she's just been through, he kind of brushes her off. He actually tells her, like, straight up to her face to shut the fuck up, I think. And, um, like, this, this is a time where she needs support, and Elliot is now deciding not to give it to her. There are a couple of things he does to her in this episode that I do not like, um, and I'll talk about them as they come up. This also uh, interferes with my theory that Darlene becomes more central in this season, um, and I had that theory because of all the symbolism related to Lolita around her. And I hope that she will come back and become a more powerful driving force in it. But for this episode, she's kind of very marginal and very fragile. Yeah, absolutely. So even though Elliot's being kind of a jerk, uh, Darlene helps him anyway, because he needs to get online to interrupt stage two. And she knows where there is a hacker space that still has power and internet access, even though the rest of the city doesn't. And she agrees to take him there. And this is a really cool scene. She says that he's not going to be allowed in wearing that shirt. <laughs> yeah. He puts on his uh, trademark black hoodie before he heads over there. I think it's really interesting to think about how Elliot is... Um, He's basically like a god in this universe because he has complete control over all of this technology. But he's completely powerless when he doesn't have access to a computer or to power. So I think it's really interesting how um, he like has the skills to solve the situation. But if he doesn't have something as simple as power and internet access, he's not really able to do anything at all. So this is a very dramatic scene when they actually get to the space. And I wonder if we could talk a bit about... This episode is really good at just creating emotions and moods in the viewer. So can we talk a little bit about how the visuals and the sound do that? I bet the producer Dave has some stuff to say about that. Yeah, so the first thing I noticed was uh, they use like a very heavy-hitting dubstep track to introduce the hackerspace. Uh, and if you have headphones on, like I do most of the time, uh, <laughs> the, um, the track is like a full production track, so it's in, you, you hear it fully mastered in your headset. Uh, and then as they move into the actual hacker space, it slowly dissolves into the atmosphere. It's, it's a fun mixing technique to take a sound and make it sound like it's not a fully mastered track and actually a part of the the space they're in. I really love that choice of, um, like, I wasn't actually sure if it was dubstep. I guess you think it is. I, I haven't heard any dubstep since there was like that weird dubstep craze where every every artist that you knew made that one dubstep album. <laughs> so I was definitely having a bit of nostalgia there. I do love, so I was watching this episode uh, on an iPad because I'm super cool, and when all the audio falls out, I actually thought my thing had like, <laughs> screwed up. I was thinking that it was uncharacteristic of them to use one that looked like a Mac interface because right. I was watching it on my Linux computer and it didn't look like it fit them at all. I would myself like a mute button for life, though. I, uh, I did agree nice. with that concept. You ever see the movie Click? No. Is that what it's called? It's awful. You should never watch it, but that's what it's about. <laughs> well, I never will. <laughs> um, a couple little throwaways here, but interesting. Anyway, when they walk in 1984, I believe is spray painted on the wall. And so we'll have maybe a more in-depth 
um, things to say about that in future episodes. They are walking into some kind of hacker competition. So as the world crumbles around them, these they're described as the Hacker Olympics. They're still going on. So this is a pretty rowdy scene. Um, and apparently Cyber Patriot, this is a real competition. So you can, you can look that up and learn more about it if your hacking skills are uh, up to snuff. One of the hackers mentions being on a Soylent diet. And, uh, well, Devlin, both you and I have been on Soylent diets. Of course, like as everybody who listens to this probably expects. Not only have we both been on the Soylent diet, but I think that both of us have made DIY Soylent before, right? Well, this it was before you could buy the commercial Soylent. I had to look it up on Reddit and... Um, you got it out of the open source one? What, what was your formula? Oh, you know what? It was... Um... Because you need, like, a carbohydrate, a fat, a protein, and then micros. So I always went with oat flour, whey protein, and canola oil. I did except sunflower oil. Oh, yeah. Oat flour. Also used corn flour ones. That's weird. Tastes like cornbread, kind of. That could be cool. It tastes like tortillas, probably. Wait, no. Are tortillas corn? Yeah, but it's sweet. Like Okay. Because if you make it with oat flour, I find it tastes like pancakes. We're getting off on a tangent now. We We're are. Gonna we should talk- stop. We're going to need to talk about this on our Nootropics uh, podcast. Exactly. Um, so in the midst of all this chaos and sound uh, and everything that's going on, Darlene notices that Dark Army's there. Yeah, it seems like they tracked him down fairly effortlessly. And Darlene, it seems like she's having a, a full-blown panic attack. And Elliot is, he's frankly being a bit of an asshole. Like, he's way more of an asshole than Irving is in this episode, in my opinion, because... He recognizes that Darlene is panicking, and um, he says kind of nonchalantly, like, are you having an attack? Which I think indicates that this is not out of character for her, and maybe this is something that's happened to her before. But he doesn't really do anything beyond that to try and help her. Truthfully, I kind of liked his approach, because I think she is having a panic attack that's part of her life, and he's not making it a big deal or making her feel weird about it. Oh, you know, that's a good point. Maybe, like, uh, she's just able to resolve it on her own more easily. Well, she tells him not to worry about it and to keep going. Because remember, they've got an important task in front of them and they have very limited time, very limited access to the internet and power to do it. So she decides she's going to try to handle it on her own. Who do you think that she called on the phone when she was panicking? She calls someone and says, you need to help me. I think she calls Dom. Wow. You know, that is a, a really good theory. Because obviously, like, at first I thought she'd be calling Cisco. That's obviously not the case. But it could be Dom. Yeah, you know... Who else do you think it could be? I, I think that you nailed it, because Dom is probably one of the only people who can help her at this point. Well, and because I think, too, this shows, if I'm correct, and we'll find out soon enough, that Dom's efforts to build trust with her and build some rapport and share information with her have worked so that she would see her as a trustworthy person who could and would help her. When I mean, Darlene's in a situation where very few people can or will help her. So I think that emergency phone call she makes in the bathroom, I think that's Dom on the other end. That plants some seeds for me because I think... Um... The last we saw Darlene, she was with Dom in the FBI headquarters, and we saw that they had like a completely bulletproof case against her. So I don't think that they would have even let her leave unless they had flipped her, which would be really sad to see. But maybe that's the case, and maybe she's never relying on them for protection. Because note that right after they get this call, they get that FBI tail, and she's been followed this whole time. You know, I don't feel like she's been flipped, though. That's not what my gut tells me right well, now. Well, I don't think that she's been, I don't think that she's been like convinced because they made a rational argument, I think that they've kind of found a way to twist her arm. I get you. Because she's desperate. She's desperate right now. Um, there's a loud knock at the door. It is the Dark Army, guys. 
they take her back over to Elliot, who has just won the hacking competition. Is there some like famous movie scene where somebody goes to a park and plays like eight chess games and wins all of them? Oh, there he is. Isn't there like I'm, speed chess? Yeah, there's some story like that, but that's basically what he does except in hacking form. Because... Watch, it was searching for Bobby Fischer or something like really obvious. Yeah, duh. <laughs> I like your Elliot says to one of the hackers, take your hand off me and leave me alone. Yeah, he's a lot more blunt about it than he's been in the past. I think I'm going to get that on a t-shirt. <laughs> we should get those for our stickers. <gasps> All right, merch idea. All right, this is great. Um, the Dark Army folks want to get out of this without drawing any more attention to themselves. They say, stand up and walk with me. And they do. Yeah, it, it kind of seemed weird that they just disappear at this point. Or what happens with them now? So they get out to the street. Uh, they are being tailed. Remember, uh, Devlin pointed out that they're have been people following them since they left the apartment. The Dark Army lets them go. You don't know that they're going to do this. Also, we should say, not only did he win the hacking competition, but he also like accomplished his goal of going there to begin with, which was destroying the back door into the recovery facility. Um, it's kind of um, like they unplug the cable right as he's doing it, but I think that he does successfully do that. I believe that he does as well, because that causes some complications later in the episode. Yeah, but the captors are apparently not aware of this fact, because they just let him go. They let him go. They tell them to walk in a particular direction, and that's when Irving is there. He's in a cab, and they get in. I guess neither of them know him at this point, right? No, I think that um, he kind of... Well, actually, no. I, I was going to say that he kind of shows his credibility, because he calls out the fact that they're being followed by the FBI. But, like, you could really say that about anybody, so I wouldn't really trust someone who had told me that I was being followed by the FBI just because they were shouting it from a cab. But, yeah, they get in the cab with strangers, and I guess it, it doesn't end up that bad for them. Well, it's interesting because Darlene wants them to take off, and Elliot says he wants to go to them because he, I think in... I don't know why he feels he needs to compel them to call off stage two at this point. The back door is closed, but I suppose they could find another way. Yeah, who knows? There's a nice social engineering moment in the cab. Um, Irving impersonates a police officer, calls up OnStar, and interferes with the controls on the FBI vehicle. Yeah, I thought that was super clever. It kind of echoed back to the um, the scene where Elliot tracked down the phone that Scott Knowles was using to call Joanna. And I think that at that time you'd related it to um, that book, Ghosts in the Wires, that you were reading. Have you finished that now? I did finish it. And honestly, every time I see a scene like this in the show, I think of Kevin Mitnick because... Just the way he describes impersonating people with just enough information to make it credible. Like, it, it reminds me so much of it. So he does a really good job. Also, apparently gas is in short supply. So he says a free cab ride is a real luxury. And then they all go to the Red Wheelbarrow for barbecue. It is their grand opening. So let's talk about what happens at the barbecue place. First, we learn that Elliot and Darlene are going to be allowed to leave. So... However badly this might go for them, they're, uh, they're not going to kick the bucket. Uh, by leave, the chicken bucket. <laughs> by leave, you mean like no longer participate in stage two? Well, actually, I thought he meant physically leave the restaurant. Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess that's a little more of a, a strict restriction. <laughs> Irving tries to dismiss Darlene from the conversation. Oh, yeah. Elliot goes along with it. That's the other thing I was alluding to earlier about how I don't really like his treatment of her in this episode where he's really, I mean, perhaps in a well-intentioned way of trying to assume the risk, 
he's really pushing her out of decisions and conversations. So they dispatch her to the other side of the restaurant. Yeah, I think that it's um, it's surprising that he doesn't stand up for her because um, it kind of echoed back to when Terry Colby kicked Angela out of that meeting and he wondered why, why that happens. Here he's completely okay with outright dismissing Darlene, even though he knows that the things that they're going to discuss might have some serious ramifications for her. And Darlene tries to stand up for herself, but he doesn't really um, assist her very much. So in their private conversation without Darlene, Elliot says that he wants stage two terminated. Yeah, so this is what I thought you were talking about earlier. Yeah. um, What's interesting is Irving says our employer will be disappointed, and Elliot says I don't have an employer. I thought that that was really interesting, because he kind of has an implicit employer in a way, and it kind of made me think about all the different cases in society where you don't really have somebody who employs you explicitly, but you still are under the control in that way. Yeah. So this, you know, they're, they're more than a partner, right? He, they're the dark army is kind of a force that um, does affect his decisions and actions, but dark army is surprisingly respectful of his request to call off the plot saying that white Rose believes a plan lives or dies by its creator. I like that. Elliot asks, them to confirm that the plan is off and uh, Irving declines that so I guess you know basically he's saying to Elliot please take the word of our international crime syndicate they've they've seen very trustworthy so far certainly certainly you can you can count on the dark army that's another t-shirt that we'll have made Irving then uh leaves the restaurant to go home to work on his book which I hope the creators of this show will actually produce that would be pretty great so now um, Darlene and Elliot have a bit of a moment to catch up. Yeah, and this is a bit of a confrontation because Darlene, remember, she had a lot of questions for him earlier and she's not getting any answers. And she uses, I think this is the social engineering trick where you show that you have certain information and hope that the other person will confirm that. She says that she knows about Tyrell, but Elliot denies his involvement. And, and why he does that, I don't know. I think that I relate it to an earlier scene where. Um, Darlene was talking to him in kind of an accusatory manner about stage two and the plan that involved killing people. She was kind of thinking that was a, a horrific idea and she couldn't believe that he was doing it. And his response to that was by saying that it wasn't me because it was actually Mr. Robot who planned it. So I think that by saying no here, what he's saying is um, that he never consciously was aware of Tyrell's involvement, but it was only as Mr. Robot that that connection existed. So I think that what he's saying isn't that Tyrell wasn't involved, but like that he wasn't involved with Elliot. Oh, okay. I could see it that way. See how much more ambiguous it is when you don't know what the outcome is? <laughs> <laughs> Elliot tries to refocus her on their survival. He thinks that Trenton and Mobley are probably already dead, and he thinks their win here is that, you know, he and Darlene make it out of it alive. One thing he does here is um, he says, you know what happened to Cisco. So he sort of invokes Cisco's memory. And that's that's still a very raw wound for Darlene, as we saw earlier. So she was really upset by that. And I think that she's a little taken aback. And that's why she storms out of the restaurant, leaving him alone. Now that both Irving and Darlene have left, Elliot is on his way home. He kind of has a bit of a, a, a monologue montage, a monologue here going on. <laughs> and um, it seemed like it was like uncharacteristically vulgar from Elliot. Because he kind of talks about like being eaten up and shot out by capitalist society and stuff like that. And it kind of made me wonder, like, the writing seems to be... He, he seems to be a little more rude in this season and also a little more profane. I wonder if that might be also a bit of um greater expression of Mr. Robot coming out of his personality, because that sounds like something he might have said. 
I was interested that this scene first is aired on something called USA Network. Yeah. Um, but this is also, this is regular cable, right? So, you know, they are taking some liberties here, you know, even just in terms of profanity, which is still kind of, I think, a, a no-no in terms of, um, you know, regular primetime stuff. So certainly the language is more aggressive. The tone is more aggressive. But I love this montage. This is my favorite scene, I think, in this episode. Well, it's very interesting to compare this montage to the very similar one that was in the pilot episode, because that was um, 2014, 2015, something like that. And you can really contrast what we thought were the bad parts of society then with what we think are the bad parts of society right now, because it almost is like a time lapse of society going to hell in a handbasket. And you can really kind of quantify it when you look at it like that. Well, and this goes back to what you were saying about some one of the real strengths of this show is how much it ties into our present reality because the landscape has changed in America, which is where the show is situated. And so, you know, when the negative things that were relevant to the show when it first aired in what, 2014? I think it was 2015, but actually this is something I should know, but I, I don't. <laughs> Compared to all of the things that are happening now, I like this, and I hope the show will delve more into this, where, you know, I think we speculate a lot about the cause for and outcomes of um, social activism or revolutions. And so there's a theory, I think, that people engage in revolutions when they feel that they don't have anything left to lose, which I think is the circumstances Elliot was hoping to precipitate, but it's he feels that it's backfired on him in a certain way where now people are so terrified and so docile that they don't engage with it because they're afraid things could get even worse for them. I felt that a lot of um, the sentiment in this scene was kind of meta because they talk about how um, hacker culture and activism has kind of been taken over by big corporations and then sold to us as merchandise and stuff like that. And of course, like, we have our own Mr. Robot merchandise. So I thought it was funny that we're watching this show that is about hacker culture and that is kind of commercialized in the same way that they talk about it in the show. Well, exactly, because of course, Mr. Robot and the network have their own merchandise. So there's also, if you look in the background, there's an ad on the television. Um, I think it's for NBC um, featuring the F Society mask. So for a show about F Society. So it's very meta. Um, also, the content, I mean, they, they incorporate real news footage into this very skillfully, I think. So this is a world where there's a Trump-Pence administration. Um, we see footage from the white supremacist rallies that have been happening um, across North America. We see icebergs crumbling. And one line that's really powerful is Elliot says, you know, we're in a space where they'll have us build our own prison. And they show, um, I guess, I don't know if they're models for um, the wall that Trump has proposed to build. So it's it really hits hard on the ways that people perhaps in their fear are being made complicit with some of these negative things that are happening around them. This made me think of another one of our favorite dystopian tales from this past year, uh, The Handmaid's Tale. Really great story. It's such a great story. I mean, terrifying and uh, very timely. But there's a scene in it when the commander says, after a major conservative social revolution has taken place, Better is never better for everyone. It's always worse for some people. And so I think that's what we're seeing here is the outcome of the 5-9 hack is that better was not better for everyone and that it did hurt some people, um, perhaps inadvertently. Uh, maybe an interesting parallel that reminds me of actually is that in The Handmaid's Tale, 
they describe how um, when a the- theocratic governments, if I'm pronouncing and remembering the word correctly, when they eventually take over power, they're able to use the existing financial systems to find out um, who in society is female and track them down and subjugate them. And uh, one shot that appears in the montage is of the proposed uh, like Muslim registry, which is talked about in the election. So that, that could be kind of similar. I, c- I wonder if that's another parallel. I could see that as a parallel. This is actually a fairly dense scene because now Elliot comes up on a big wall that has uh, portraits in memory of people that he recognizes. This, again, this is Elliot's moment of realizing personal responsibility. I don't know if I agree with the character's assessment that it is his responsibility that all these things have happened, but on the wall, this is a wall of missing people. There are RIPs for Gideon. Uh, and for Shayla, there are also some signs. They look almost like depression era signs, or they're basically like man looking for work, um, you know, try to find any kind of employment or support. So it's this big bleak wall of collateral damage from the destruction of the financial system. It's kind of a, a look into Elliot's feelings right now because this is his. Um, I, I don't know if it's a hallucination or this is just what he's imagining while he's sitting silently at that barbecue. And now that they're closing up, he has to leave. Now we're back at Angela's place. It seems like it's still just uh, lit up by candlelight, but Elliot is joining Angela here. It seems like this is his uh, temporary uh, crash pad, and uh, he's asking Angela for a couple of favors. Namely, he wants a job at Ecorp. And I think that's because in this uh, that, the monologue montage she had, he's really kind of cemented the idea that the consequences of his actions were not really what he'd anticipated when he decided to create the 5-9 attack. So he's kind of trying to reverse those actions. And he thinks that by working at Ecorp, he might be able to do that. He has another favor to ask of her, though, because remember, we haven't seen Mr. Robot this whole episode. And he asks Angela to watch for his return. She sounds like she's not exactly confident that she'll be able to know or that she'll be able to distinguish between Mr. Robot and Elliot. Because, of course, only only to us do they have different kind of physicalities. But to her, she can't really tell the difference so easily. This, of course, troubles me because there's just a weird vibe about Angela this episode, and I just don't trust that she's going to use that in Elliot's best interests. But anyway. Do you think that this is a sign that she was acting really well, that they were able to give us that impression in such short scenes? I do think her acting is good here. I I mean, I think the whole cast is excellent, and this next scene that we're going to talk about with Christian Slater, I think he's really great in that. I do see a lot of good work on their part, and they've really kind of come into the characters over the two seasons, right? Right. So Elliot, he, he kind of um, is losing even more faith in his own sanity right now, and he's trying to get Angela to keep an eye on him. Right after that, Angela starts going off on a crazy tirade about uh, parallel universes and time travel, maybe, and rewriting history and other kind of crazy stuff like that. So if I was Elliot right now, I'd kind of be like reconsidering who I picked for a guardian. But Angela kind of... Um, backs away from this discussion once Elliot starts asking questions, and she doesn't really reveal anything about what she's actually talking about. No, because she puts to him the question, what if we could make this like none of it ever happened? Yeah, so I think that this is hinting even more at like a weird sci-fi future. It, it might just be like very abstract metaphors, I guess. I just have in big letters in my notes, we are not going back to the future. So <laughs> I hope there will be no time travel. Um, there is kind of an intense moment where Elliot kisses Angela but then she rejects him yeah and the, the sense in contrast to when they met in the subway last because actually I, I don't know if it's in contrast but it is interesting to relate the two because she does reject him here 
when she didn't necessarily earlier. In Elliot's internal monologue, he says that this kind of classic Angela, she never loves the people who love her. Um, and also, this is her power saver mode, and that's the name of the episode. Anyway, despite that uh, rather uh, abrupt rejection, Angela asks if he'll stay the night at her place. Um, Angela says that that will help her to feel safe. So he does agree to sleep on her couch. And we do get a little cameo here by one of our favorite animal actors. It's QWERTY. Do you think it's been the same betta fish in all the episodes? I don't think that their lifespan is that long. I could be wrong, though. Do you know that in, um, I think in Frasier, the dog died and they had to replace it with the dog's son? What? That's not the, the original dog? I don't think so. I could be wrong about that, but I, I'm pretty sure that's how it went down. The dog's name was Moose. It was like a famous canine actor. I have a feeling that maybe everyone in the Mr. Robot team just has a little blue betta fish at their house because of all the ones that they had to use for shooting. This is making me miss uh, Flipper, though. We haven't seen him in a while. Oh, Flipper. So during the night, Angela is awakened by Mr. Robot, who is like the most Mr. Robot Mr. Robot has ever been at this moment. Interestingly, he's not wearing his trademark hat right now, though. But he does have a very Grinch who stole Christmas expression about him. And uh, there's something (laughs) about is I keep using the term face acting. I'm sure that's not a thing that's particularly sinister. Angela and Mr. Robot, uh, it seems, are in cahoots. Yeah, this was a really big shock. And it seems like Angela has been working with Mr. Robot for quite a while now. And this, to me, makes it seem like in the earlier scene, she's kind of played Elliot and knows how to maybe um, not trigger him, but um, bring out Mr. Robot's presence when it's strategically useful to her. I definitely get that impression, too. And it makes me wonder if she's been doing this for a long time or if it's only really um, because of the circumstance that she finds herself in with the Dark Army. It might be necessary for her own safety. Now, if we see a couple of scenes around Angela's apartment at this moment, and there's a picture of who I believe is the little girl from the Red Room, uh, and the inference is that it's Angela and her mom. Oh, my God. Wow, that's, right? a, I didn't, that's a good spot. I didn't notice that. Uh, Angela says that uh, she's got to get dressed, and they'll go. So it seems like both of them know what the plan is and where they're headed. So one thing, I wasn't able to pick out what it was, but she brings something with her, and she says that it's in case Elliot comes back. Did you notice what that was? No, I watched it a few times trying to see. I wonder if she has the gun, if Irving gave it back to her. That's what I thought, too, but I don't think we got to see it. We, I didn't see it. I certainly didn't see it. Um, so that's in case Elliot comes back. Angela's also working very hard to keep Darlene out of the picture. Mm-hmm. So, And she tells Mr. Robot at this point that she helped to close the back door. So now he knows that that option isn't available to them anymore. She also contradicts herself here because earlier when Elliot had asked her to keep an eye on him, she said that it might not be possible for her to tell um, when Elliot is acting as himself or as Mr. Robot. And um, what she says here actually is that she's able to tell when Elliot is acting as Mr. Robot because um, she's able to make constant eye contact. This is really interesting to me that Mr. Robot is actively working against Elliot. And it also makes me think that whatever they're doing at Sludge Plant must seem really, really important to him. Because remember, he already died once before for this project. So given all the information that he has, all the consequences, he still believes that they've got to push through and carry on with whatever White Rose's work is there. Uh, Angela and Mr. Robot are on a field trip to go see... Well, in my notes, I just refer to him as new guy. 
In my notes, I refer to him as Frank. And I don't know if that's because I read it in promotional material. Like, I knew that when I casted this character, they posted something about it and mentioned the character's name. Um, but that might also just not be his name, and I just think he looked like a Frank, because he kind of does, doesn't he? He looks like a Frank, but we think his name is Irving, and that's what we've been calling him throughout the course of this episode anyway. Yeah, but notably, I don't think they mention his name as Irving in the episode at all. You just see it on one of his business cards and in the description for the show. So we're going to ask you to just hold in your minds that this character is Irving. <laughs> um, he doesn't really trust that the situation is under control, though. Yeah, and he doesn't even know the full extent of Elliot's problems right now. So if he knew the full situation, he would probably be horrified. He's questioning Angela about it, but it seems like it's her job to keep him under control. And I think that Angela kind of busted out some of her e-corp corporate political skills here because she just says, this is what my responsibility is. This is something I can handle and I don't need you to interfere. She also says she's going to get him that job at e-corp. Yeah, so she's kind of calling the shots here. And it makes me wonder what the consequences of that will be. There's someone else in the scene, though. Are you referring to Mr. Robot? No. I'm referring to the infamous Swede, as he was referred oh, to earlier. Oh, yeah. No, I forgot about him. <laughs> Tyrell is there. Yeah, he's meeting Elliot again for the first time since he shot him. Although I guess actually who he's meeting is Mr. Robot. I do think that he cares about Elliot. Like, to me, his concern and distress about what happens seems genuine. Yeah, I think that Tyrell actually, like, really um, sympathizes with Elliot in a way, maybe, or at least empathizes with him. Although I don't remember what the difference is between those words. Um, it seems like he kind of only shot him very reluctantly, but he also doesn't really apologize. He more, like, uh, explains or rationalizes his decision. But of course, Mr. Robot is okay with that. He also ex like explicitly says at the end of the season two that he loves him. Yeah, so I guess he's kind of clear about it. <laughs> What's interesting to me about this episode is that all of the people I thought were really major actors or major players in the hack and the downfall of society as they know it, now to me all seem to be pawns. And it also kind of flips the other direction where some characters who seemed kind of insignificant are now kind of... Uh... Like building up a little bit. I really wonder what's going to happen with White Rose Associate, who's kind of trying to take on more power. Maybe they'll give him a name. I think that's how it starts, you know? Yeah. Or maybe he has a name and I just missed it, but. I wouldn't be very surprised if we found that Sandwich Guy was like the core of this whole story by the end of it. I love that theory. Um, so this episode is interesting. I think it's so destabilizing for the characters and the plot as we knew it that it really does put you on edge as a viewer and it does make me want to learn more about what's going to happen in this season. So I, I'm into it. It's different, but I'm into it. I also just noticed that Price isn't in this episode either. Oh, Price isn't in this episode. Good catch. Well, it's caught now, so not really. <laughs> Better late than uh, never. Now that everybody's back together, they're able to hack back into E-Corp's recovery facility. It seems like they use um, an exploit on Apache Tomcat, which is kind of interesting because it's not as relevant as you would think, but there is software called Apache Struts, which is like a web framework, whereas Tomcat is a web server. So not really like necessarily related at all, but a vulnerability in Struts is what was used to hack um, Equifax in that really huge breach that just happened. Oh. So it's kind of a, a bit of a, a parallel to real life there once again. The, the other thing this made me wonder... If, it made me wonder if I was understanding the scene correctly, actually, because it seems a little obtuse, but why didn't they just try hacking them remotely to begin with instead of needing to physically plant the backdoor for them to sell? 
that would have saved like a whole episode and cut one of our very favorite scenes and the, well this goes back to i think that remember when you say i don't know why they just don't delete the data why do they bother to encrypt the data and yeah. leave it there i guess it's kind of creative license or dramatic uh, dramatic effects i think they are leaving doors open to themselves in the storytelling um or you know perhaps this is also is it mr robot who does this hack yeah perhaps it's something that didn't occur to elliot that's or... definitely possible. Well, I, I think that the femme de cell backdoor and this attack were probably envisioned by different people. So that's a good point. Um, so once this happens, uh, does it just transition right to the bus scene? Well, let's ask producer Dave because he noticed some interesting things about the transition. Yeah, so you, the focus of the scene is really on Angela and like kind of her position uh, towards Elliot. So you see her in the frame and she slowly goes out of focus and it focuses on... Uh, Tyrell and Mr. Robot, right? And while that happens, there's um, I I noted it as uh, disco because it reminded me of new disco, like and new disco, mm -hmm. the genre. Um, but it's it's more like a house beat, uh, and it's soundtracked it in, so it's kind of like the dubstep earlier. Uh, so you kind of get disconnected from Angela, and then once the soundtrack, once it leaves the soundtrack and becomes part of the ambience, it's the song coming out of the boombox on the bus, and then you see Angela again on the bus with Mr. Robot, and he's just yakking away that's cool when you said new disco what i immediately thought was disco new doesn't advertise is that a simpsons joke yeah disco stew doesn't advertise uh, no, sorry that it. was terrible it was terrible no it just took me a second but it gets us to the bust and so this is the last scene in the episode and i think we get to see how much of the kool-aid angela's had to drink at this point she has basically like turned her face blue at this point <laughs> mr robot is kind of testing her he doesn't trust her i mean neither do i so i, I kind of get it but she talks a little bit about her motivations for doing what she's doing now well, she uses this to sort of rationalize what she's doing with Elliot, which is keeping his waking self in the dark and working exclusively with his Mr. Robot personality. She also talks about how pivotal that meeting with White Rose was for her, where she thought it was never going to be possible to get justice for her mother or the other people who died as a result of Sludgegate, but that White Rose has opened her eyes and made her believe that this damage could all be undone. Because remember, in her apartment, she's talking to Elliot about not just undoing 5-9, but undoing all of these incidents going what 30 years back yeah she believes a new world is going to be born and just then all the electricity comes back on and so there's probably some like hacky metaphor here about you know metaphoric power and electrical power and <laughs> that kind of stuff but they're back in the light and i believe that's the end of the episode can you imagine what it must have been like for everybody else in the bus to overhear that super weird conversation but think about how many weird conversations you overhear on the bus. Like, this is by far probably yeah. not the worst. Especially because they're in New York City, right? And, like, just in Toronto, I feel like I experience that every now and then. So, you know, pay attention on the bus. That's, that's really what we're saying. Don't sleep on the subway. Thanks for listening to Mr. Rewatch. This episode was taped in downtown Hamilton. We also want to take this opportunity to thank everybody who subscribed on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, and to everyone who's followed us on social media, we're at Mr. Underscore Rewatch on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook as well. We are so excited to start Season 3, and thanks a lot for listening to the premiere. If you enjoyed the premiere, we'd ask you to consider contributing to Tech Solidarity at techsolidarity.org. They help connect tech workers to the communities they live in. I'm Aaron. I'm Devlin. Bonsoir.